CD2. So, Moist thought as he put the pot back with extreme care. Inside the post office, normality clearly does not have a one-to-one -one relationship with the outside world. I might miss the cues. He decided that the role of keen but bewildered manager was the one to play here. Besides, apart from the keen aspect, it didn't need any effort. "'Can you help me, Mr Grote?' he said. "'I don't know anything about the post.' "'Well, sir, what did you use to do?' "'Rob, trick, forge, embezzle, but never, and this was important, using any kind of violence. Never. Moist had always been very careful about that. He tried not to sneak, either, if he could avoid it. Being caught at 1am in a bank's deposit vault while wearing a black suit with lots of little pockets in it could be considered suspicious, so why do it? With careful planning, the right suit, the right papers, and above all the right manner, you could walk into the place at midday and the manager would hold the door open for you when you left. Palming rings and exploiting the cupidity of the rural stupid was just a way of keeping his hand in. It was the face that was what it was. He had an honest face, and he loved those people who looked him firmly in the eye to see his inner self, because he had a whole set of inner selves, one for every occasion. As for firm handshakes, practice had given him one to which you could moor boats. It was people skills, that was what it was, special people skills. Before you could sell glass as diamonds, you had to make people really want to see diamonds. That was the trick, the trick of all tricks. You changed the way people saw the world. You let them see it the way they wanted it to be. How the hell had Vetinari known his name? The man had cracked fond lip big like an egg, and the watch here were demonic. As for setting a golem on a man... I was a clerk, said Moist. What, paperwork, that sort of thing, said Grote looking at him intently. Yes, pretty much all paperwork. That was honest, if you included playing cards, cheques, letters of accreditation, bank drafts and deeds. Oh, another one, said Groves. Well, there's not a lot to do. We can shove up and make room for you in here, no problem. But I'm supposed to make it work again like it used to, Mr Groves. Yeah, right, said the old man. You just come along with me then, Mr Litvig. I reckon there's one or two things you ain't been told. He led the way out, back into the dingy main hall, a little trail of yellow powder leaking from his boots. "'My dad used to bring me here when I were a lad,' he said. "'A lot of families were post-office families in those days. "'They had them big, glass-drippy, tinkling things up in the ceiling, right? For lights?' "'Chandeliers,' Moist suggested. "'Yeah, probably,' said Grote. Two of them. "'And there was brass and copper everywhere, polished up like gold. "'There was balconies, sir, all round the big hall, on every floor made of iron like lace.' And all the counters was of rare wood, my dad said. And people, this place was packed. The doors never stopped swinging, even at night. Oh, at night, sir, out in the big backyard, you should have been there. The lights, the coaches coming and going, the horses steaming. Oh, sir, you should have seen it, sir. The men running the teams out there, this this thing, sir, this, this device. You could get a coach in and out of the yard in one minute, sir, one minute. The bustle, sir, the bustle and fuss. They said you could come here from Dolly Sisters or even down in the shambles and post a letter to yourself and you'd have to run like the blazes, sir, the very blazes, sir, to beat the postman to your door. And a uniform, sir, royal blue with brass buttons, you should have seen them. And 
Moist looked over the babbling man's shoulders to the nearest mountain of pigeon guano, where Mr Pump had paused in his digging. The golem had been prodding at the fetid, horrible mess, and, as Moist watched him, he straightened up and headed towards them with something in his hand. "'And when the big coaches came in, sir, all the way from the mountains, you could hear the horns miles away. You should have heard them, sir. And if any bandits tried anything, there was men we had who'd go out and—' "'Yes, Mr Pump,' said Moist, halting Groat in mid-history. "'A surprising discovery, Postmaster. "'The mounds are not, as I surmised, made of pigeon dung. "'No pigeons could achieve that amount in thousands of years, sir.' "'Well, what are they made of, then?' "'Letters, sir,' said the golem. "'Moist looked down at Groat, who shifted uneasily. "'Ah, yes,' said the old man. "'I was coming to that.' Letters. There was no end to them. They filled every room of the building and spilled out into the corridors. It was technically true that the postmaster's office was unusable because of the state of the floor. It was twelve feet deep in letters. Whole corridors were blocked off with them. Cupboards had been stuffed full of them. To open a door incautiously was to be buried in an avalanche of yellowing envelopes. Floorboards bulged suspiciously upwards. Through cracks in the sagging ceiling plaster, paper protruded. The sorting room, almost as big as the main hall, had drifts reaching to twenty feet in places. Here and there, filing cabinets rose out of the paper sea like icebergs. After half an hour of exploration, Moist wanted a bath. It was like walking through desert tombs. He felt he was choking on the smell of old paper. He felt as though his throat was filled with yellow dust. "'I was told I had an apartment here,' he croaked. "'Yes, sir,' said Groat. "'Me and the lad had a look for it the other day. "'I heard that it was on the other side of your office, "'so the lad went in on the end of a rope, sir. "'He said he felt a door, sir, "'but he'd sunk six feet under the mail by then, "'and he was suffering, sir, suffering, so I pulled him out. "'The whole place is full of undelivered mail.' "'They were back in the locker room. "'Groat had topped up the black kettle from a pan of water, "'and it was steaming.' At the far end of the room, sitting at a neat little table by the stove, Stanley was counting his pins. "'Pretty much, sir, except in the basements and the stables,' said the old man, washing a couple of tin mugs in a bowl of not very clean water. "'You mean even the post... My office is full of old mail, but they never filled the basements. Where's the sense in that?' "'Oh, you couldn't use the basement, sir. Oh, no, not the basements,' said Grote, looking shocked. "'It's far too damp down there. The letters will be destroyed in no time.' "'Destroyed,' said Moist, flatly. "'Nothing like damp for destroying things, sir,' said Grote, nodding sagely. "'Destroying mail, from dead people to dead people,' said Moist, in the same flat voice. "'We don't know that, sir,' said the old man. "'I mean, we've got no actual proof.' "'Well, no. After all, some of those envelopes are only a hundred years old,' said Moist." He had a headache from the dust and a sore throat from the dryness, and there was something about the old man that was grating on his raw nerves. He was keeping something back. That's no time at all to some people. I bet the zombie and vampire population are still waiting by the letterbox every day, right? No need to be like that, sir, said Grote levelly. No need to be like that. You can't destroy the mails. You just can't do it, sir. That's tampering with the mail, sir. That's not just a crime, sir. That's a... 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 "'A sin?' said Moist. "'Oh, worse than a sin,' said Grote, almost sneering. "'For sins you're only in trouble with a god. 
But in my day, if you interfered with the mail, you'd be up against Chief Postal Inspector Rumbelow. Ha! And there's a big difference. Gods forgive! Moist searched for sanity in the wrinkled face opposite him. The unkempt beard was streaked with different colours, either of dirt, tea, or random celestial pigment. Like some hermit, he thought. Only a hermit would wear a wig like that. Sorry, he said. And you mean that shoving someone's letter under the floorboards for a hundred years isn't tampering with it? Grote suddenly looked wretched. The beard quivered. Then he started to cough. Great, hacking, wooden, crackling lumps of cough that made the jars shake and caused a yellow mist to rise from his trouser bottoms. Excuse me a moment, sir, he wheezed between hacks and fumbled in his pocket for a scratched and battered tin. You suck at all, sir, he said, tears rolling down his cheeks. He proffered the tin to Moist. They're number three, sir, very mild. I make em myself, sir. Natural remedies from natural ingredients, that's my style, sir. Got to keep the tubes clear, sir, otherwise they turn against you. Moist took a large violet lozenge from the box and sniffed it. It smelt faintly of aniseed. Thank you, Mr Grote, he said. But in case this counted as an attempt at bribery, he added sternly, The mail, Mr Grote, sticking undelivered mail wherever there's a space isn't tampering with it. That's more delaying the mail, sir. Just uh, slowing it down a bit. It's not like there's any intention of never delivering it, sir. Moist stared at Grote's worried expression. He felt that sense of shifting ground you experience when you realise that you're dealing with someone whose world is connected with your own only by their fingertips. Not a hermit, he thought, but more like a shipwrecked mariner living in this dry desert island of a building while the world outside moves on and all sanity evaporates. Mr Grote, I don't want to, you know... "'Upset you or anything, but there's thousands of letters out there "'under a thick layer of pigeon guano,' he said slowly. "'Actually, on that score, sir, things aren't as bad as they seem,' said Grote, "'and paused to suck noisily on his natural cough lozenge. "'It's very dry stuff, pigeon doings, "'and forms quite a hard protective crust on the envelopes.' "'Why are they all here, Mr Grote?' said Moist. "'People skills,' he remembered.' "'You're not allowed to shake him.' "'The junior postman avoided his gaze. "'Well, you know how it is,' he tried. "'No, Mr Grote, I don't think I do.' "'Well, maybe a man's busy, got a full round. "'Maybe it's Hogswatch, lots of cards, see, "'and the inspector is after him about his timekeeping, "'and so maybe he just shoves half a bag of letters somewhere safe. "'But he will deliver them, right? "'I mean, it's not his fault if they keeps pushing, sir, "'pushing him all the time.' Then it's tomorrow, and he's got an even bigger bag, because they're pushing all the time, so he reckons I'll just drop a few off today, too, because it's my day off on Thursday, and I can catch up then. But, you see, by Thursday, he's behind by more than a day's work, because they keep on pushing. And he's tired anyway, tired as a dog. So then he says to himself, got some leave coming up soon, but he gets his leave, and by then, well, it all got very nasty towards the end. There was uh, unpleasantness. We'd gone too far, sir, that's what it was. We'd tried too hard. Sometimes things smash so bad, it's better to leave it alone than try and pick up the pieces. I mean, where would you start? I think I get the picture, said Moist. You're lying, Mr Grote. You're lying by omission. You're not telling me everything. And what you're not telling me is very important, isn't it? I've turned lying into an art, Mr Grote, and you're just a talented amateur. 
Grote's face, unaware of the internal monologue, managed to smile. "'But the trouble is... "'What's your first name, Mr Grote?' Moist asked. "'Tolliver, sir. Nice name. "'The thing is, Tolliver, that the picture I see in your description "'is what I might refer to, for the purposes of the analogy, as a cameo. "'Whereas all this,' Moist waved his hand to include the building and everything it contained, "'is a full-sized triptych showing scenes from history, the creation of the world, "'and the disposition of the gods, with a matching chapel ceiling "'portraying the glorious firmament and a sketch of a lady with a weird smile "'thrown in for good measure. "'Tolliver, I think you are not being frank with me.' "'Sorry about that, sir,' said Grote, eyeing him with a sort of nervous defiance. "'I could have you sacked, you know,' said Moist, knowing that this was a stupid thing to say. "'You could, sir, you could try doing that,' said Grote quietly and slowly. "'But I'm all you got apart from a lad, and you don't know nothing about the post office, sir. "'You don't know nothing about the regulations, neither. "'I'm the only one that knows what needs doing round here. "'You wouldn't last five minutes without me, sir. "'You wouldn't even see the inkwells get filled every day.' "'Inkwells?' "'Filling inkwells,' said Moist. "'This is just an old building full of... 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 dead paper. "'We have no customers. "'Got to keep the inkwells filled, sir. "'Post office regulations,' said Grote in a steely voice. "'Got to follow regulations, sir. "'For what? "'It appears we don't accept any mail or deliver any mail. "'We just sit here.' "'No, sir, we don't just sit here,' said Grote patiently. "'We follow the post office regulations. "'Fill the inkwells, polish the brass. "'You don't sweep up the pigeon shit.' "'Oddly enough, that's not in the regulations, sir,' said the old man. "'Truth is, sir, no one wants us any more. "'It's all the clacks now, the damn clacks, clack, 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 clack. "'Everyone's got a clacks tower now, sir, that's the fashion. "'Fast as the speed of light, they say. Ha!' "'It's got no soul, sir, no art. "'I ate some, but we're ready, sir. "'If there was any mail, we'd deal with it, sir. "'We'd spring into action, sir, spring into action. "'But there ain't. "'Of course there isn't. "'It's clearly sunk into this town long ago "'that you might as well throw your letters away "'as give them to the post office. "'No, sir, wrong again. "'They're all kept, sir. "'That's what we do, sir. "'We keep things as they are. "'We try not to disturb things, sir.' "'said Grote quietly. "'We try not to disturb anything.' "'The way he said it made Moist hesitate. "'What kind of anything?' he said. "'Oh, nothing, sir. We just go carefully.' "'Moist looked around the room. "'Did it appear smaller? Did the shadows deepen and lengthen? "'Was there a sudden cold sensation in the air? "'No, there wasn't. "'But an opportunity had definitely been missed, Moist felt. "'The hairs on the back of his neck were rising.' Moist had heard that this was because men had been made out of monkeys, and it meant that there was a tiger behind you. In fact, Mr Pump was behind him, just standing there, eyes burning more brightly than any tiger had ever managed. This was worse. Tigers couldn't follow you across the sea, and they had to sleep. He gave up. Mr Grote was in some strange, musty little world of his own. "'Do you call this a life?' he said. For the first time in this conversation, Mr Grote looked at him squarely in the eye. "'Much better than a death, sir,' he said. Mr Pump followed Moist across the main hall and out of the main doors, at which point Moist turned on him. "'All right. What are the rules here?' he demanded. "'Are you going to follow me everywhere? You know I can't run.' "'You are allowed autonomous movement within the city and environs,' the golem rumbled. 
but until you are settled in, I am also instructed to accompany you for your own protection. Against who? Someone annoyed that their great-granddaddy's mail didn't turn up? I couldn't say, sir. I need some fresh air. What happened in there? Why is it so creepy? What happened to the post office? I couldn't say, sir, said Mr. Pump placidly. You don't know, but it's your city, said Moist sarcastically. Have you been stuck at the bottom of a hole in the ground for the last hundred years? No, Mr. Libvig, said the golem. Well, why can't... Moist began. It was two hundred and forty years, Mr. Libvig, said the golem. What was? The time I spent at the bottom of the hole in the ground, Mr. Libvig. What are you talking about? said Moist. Why... The time I spent at the bottom of the hole in the ground, Mr. Lipvig. Pump is not my name, Mr. Lipvig. It is my description. Pump, pump 19 to be precise. I stood in the bottom of a hole a hundred feet deep and pumped water for two hundred and forty years, Mr. Lipvig. But now I am ambulating in the sunlight. This is better, Mr. Lipvig. This is better. That night, Moist lay staring at the ceiling. It was three feet from him. Hanging from it a little distance away was a candle in a safety lantern. Stanley had been insistent about that, and no wonder. This place would go up like a bomb. It was the boy who showed him up here. Grote was sulking somewhere. He'd been right, damn him. He needed Grote. Grote practically was the post office. It had been a long day, and Moist hadn't slept well last night, what with being upside down over Mr Pump's shoulder and occasionally kicked by the frantic horse. He didn't want to sleep here either, heavens knew, but he didn't have lodgings he could use any more, and they were at a premium in this hive of a city in any case. The locker room did not appeal, no, not at all, so he'd simply scrambled onto the pile of letters in what was, in theory, his office. It was no great hardship. A man of affairs such as he had to learn to sleep in all kinds of situations, often while mobs were looking for him a wall's thickness away. At least the heaps of letters were dry and warm and weren't carrying edged weapons. Paper crackled underneath him as he tried to get comfortable. Idly, he picked up a letter at random. It was addressed to someone called Antimony Parker at one Lobin Clout, and on the back, in capitals, it said... S-W-A-L-K. He eased it open with a fingernail. The paper inside all but crumbled at his touch. My very dearest Timony. Yes, why should a woman, sensible to the great honour that a man is doing her, play the coy minx at such a time? I know you have spoken to Papa, and of course I consent to becoming the wife of the kindest, most wonderful... Moist glanced at the date on the letter... It had been written forty-one years ago. He was not, as a rule, given to introspection, it being a major drawback in his line of work, but he couldn't help wondering if, he glanced back at the letter, your loving Agnathea had ever married Antimony, or whether the romance had died right here in this graveyard of paper. He shivered and tucked the envelope into his jacket. He'd have to ask Grote what SWALK meant. Mr Pump, he shouted, there was a faint rumble from the corner of the room where the golem stood, waist-deep in mail. Yes, Mr. Libvig. Is there no way you can shut your eyes? I can't sleep with two red glowing eyes watching me. It's, um, well, it's a childhood thing. 
Sorry, Mr. Lipvig, I could turn my back. That won't work. I'd still know they're there. Anyway, the glow reflects off the wall. Look, where would I run to? The golem gave this some thought. I will go and stand in the corridor, Mr. Lipvig, he decided, and began to wade towards the door. You do that, said Moist. And in the morning, I want you to find my bedroom, OK? Some of the offices still have space near the ceiling. You can move the letters into there. Mr. Grote does not like the mail to be moved, Mr. Lipvig, the golem rumbled. Mr. Grote is not the postmaster, Mr. Pump. I am. Good gods, the madness is catching moist thought as the glow of the golem's eyes disappeared into the darkness outside. I'm not the postmaster. I'm some poor bastard who's the victim of some stupid experiment. What a place. What a situation. What kind of man would put a known criminal in charge of a major branch of government? Apart from, say, the average voter. He tried to find the angle, the way out, but all the time a conversation kept bouncing off the insides of his brain. Imagine a hole a hundred feet deep and full of water. Imagine the darkness. Imagine, at the bottom of the hole, a figure roughly of human shape, turning in that swirling darkness a massive handle once every eight seconds. Pump, 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 for two hundred and forty years. You didn't mind? Moist had asked. You mean, did I harbour resentment, Mr Lipvig? But I was doing useful and necessary work. Besides, there was much for me to think about. At the bottom of a hundred feet of dirty water, what the hell did you find to think about? Pumping, Mr Lipvig. And then, the golem said, had come cessation and dim light, a lowering of levels, a locking of chains, movement upwards, emergence into a world of light and colour and other golems. Moist knew something about golems. They used to be baked out of clay thousands of years ago and brought to life by some kind of scroll put inside their heads. And they never wore out, and they worked all the time. You saw them pushing brooms or doing heavy work in timber yards and foundries. Most of them you never saw at all. They made the hidden wheels go round, down in the dark. And that was more or less the limit of his interest in them. They were, almost by definition, honest. But now the golems were freeing themselves. It was the quietest, most socially responsible revolution in history. They were property, and so they saved up and bought themselves. Mr Pump was buying his freedom by seriously limiting the freedom of moist. A man could get quite upset about that. Surely that wasn't how freedom was supposed to work. He, gods, thought moist, back in the here and now. No wonder groats sucked cough sweets all the time. The dust in this place would choke you. He rummaged in his pocket and pulled out the diamond-shaped cough lozenge that the old man had given him. It looked harmless enough. One minute later, after Mr Pump had lurched into the room and slapped him heavily on the back, the steaming lozenge was stuck to the wall on the far side of the room, where by morning it had dissolved quite a lot of the plaster. Mr Grote took a measured spoonful of tincture of rhubarb and cayenne pepper to keep the tubes open, and checked that he still had the dead mole around his neck to ward off any sudden attack of doctors. Everyone knew doctors made you ill, it stood to reason. Nature's remedies were the trick every time, not some hellish potion made of God's new what. 
He smacked his lips appreciatively. He'd put fresh sulphur in his socks tonight, too, and he could feel it doing him good. Two candle lanterns glowed in the velvet, papery darkness of the main sorting office. The light was shining through the outer glass, filled with water so that the candle would go out if it was dropped. It made the lanterns look like the lights of some abyssal fish from the squiddy, iron-hard depths. There was a little glugging noise in the dark. Grote corked his bottle of elixir and got on with business. "'Be the inkwells filled, apprenticed postman Stanley,' Grote intoned. "'I, junior postman Grote, fall to a depth of one-third of one inch from the top, as per post office counter regulations, daily observances, rule C-18,' said Stanley. There was a rustle as Grote turned the pages of a huge book on the lectern in front of him. "'Can I see the picture, Mr Grote?' Grote smiled. It had become part of the ceremony, and he gave the reply he gave every time. "'Very well.' "'But this is the last time. "'It's not good to look too often on the face of a god,' he said, "'or any other part.' "'But you said there used to be a gold statue of him in the big hall, Mr Grote. "'People must have looked on it all the time.' "'Grote hesitated, but Stanley was a growing lad. "'He'd have to know sooner or later. "'Mind you, I don't reckon people used to look at his face much,' he said. "'They looked more at the uh, wings.' "'On his hat and ankles?' said Stanley, so he could fly the messages at the speed of messages. A little bead of sweat dripped off Grote's forehead. Mostly on his hat and ankles, yes, he said. Uh, but not only there. Stanley peered at the picture. Oh, yes. I've never noticed them before. He's got wings on uh, the fig leaf, said Grote quickly. That's what we call it. Why has he got a leaf there, said Stanley. "'Oh, they, they all had them in the olden days, "'cause of being classical,' said Grote, "'relieved to be shifting away from the heart of the matter. "'It's uh, a fig leaf off a fig tree. "'Ha, ha, the joke's on them. "'There's no fig trees round here,' said Stanley, "'in the manner of one exposing the floor in a long-held dogma. "'Yes, Dad, very good, but it was a tin one anyway,' said Grote, with patience. "'And the wings,' said the boy. "'Well, I suppose they thought that the more wings the better,' said Grote.' Yes, but supposing his hat wings and his ankle wings stopped working, he'd be held up by... Stanley, it's just a statue. Don't get so excited. Calm down. You don't want to upset... Them. Stanley hung his head. They've been uh, whispering to me again, Mr Grote, he confided in a low voice. Yes, Stanley, they whisper to me too. I remember them last time talking in the night, Mr Grote said Stanley, his voice trembling. I shut my eyes and I kept seeing the writing. Yes, Stanley, don't worry about it. Try not to think about it. It's Mr Lipstick's fault stirring them up. Leave well alone, I say. They never listen and then what happens, they find out the hard way. It seems like only yesterday those watchmen drawing that chalk outline around Mr Mutable, said Stanley, beginning to tremble. He, he found out the hard way. Calm down, calm down said Grote, patting him gently on the shoulder. You'll set them off. Think about pins. But it's a cruel shame, Mr Grote, them never being alive long enough to make you senior postman. Grote sniffed. Oh, that's enough of that. That's not important, Stanley, he said, his face like thunder. Yes, Mr Grote, but you're an old, old man, and you're only a junior postman, Stanley persisted. I said that's enough, Stanley. Now just raise that lamp again, will you? Good. That's better. "'I'll read a page of the regulations. "'That always quietens them down.' "'Grote cleared his throat. 
I shall now read from the Book of Regulations Delivery Times Metropolitan Sundays and Octodays Accepted, he announced to the air, as follows. The hours by which letters should be put into the receiving houses in town for each delivery within the city walls of Ankh-Morpork are as the following. Overnight by eight o'clock in the evening for the first delivery. Morning by eight o'clock for the second delivery. Morning by ten o'clock for the third delivery. Morning by twelve o'clock for the fourth delivery. Afternoon by two o'clock for the fifth delivery. Afternoon by four o'clock for the sixth delivery. Afternoon by six o'clock for the seventh delivery. These are the hours, and I have read them. Grote hung his head for a moment and then closed the book with a snap. "'Why are we doing this, Mr Grote?' said Stanley, meekly. "'Cause of hubris,' said Mr Grote. "'That's what it is. Hubris killed the post office. Hubris and greed and bloody stupid Johnson and the new pie.' "'A pie, Mr Grote? How could a pie?' "'Don't ask, Stanley. It gets complicated and there's nothing in it about pins.' They put out the candles and left. When they were gone, a faint whispering started. Chapter 3 Our Own Hand or None In which our hero discovers the world of pins. The Greengrocer's Apostrophe S.W.A.L.K. The Path of Fate The Golem Lady The Business of Business and the nature of freedom once again discussed. Clark Bryan shows enthusiasm. Rise on shine, Mr. Lipvig, your second day as postmaster. Moist opened one crusted eye and glared at the golem. Oh, so you're an alarm clock too, he said. Ah, oh, my tongue. It feels like it was caught in a mouse trap. He half crawled, half rolled across the bed of letters and managed to stand up just outside the door. I need new clothes, he said, and food and a toothbrush. I'm going out, Mr. Pump. You are to stay here. Do something. Tidy the place up. Get rid of the graffiti on the walls, will you? At least we can make the place look clean. Anything you say, Mr. Lipvig? Right, said Moist, and strode off for one stride and then yelped. "'Be careful of your ankle, Mr. Lipvig,' said Mr. Pump. "'And another thing,' said Moist, hopping on one leg. "'How can you follow me? How can you possibly know where I am?' "'Karmic signature, Mr. Lipvig,' said the golem. "'And that means what exactly?' Moist demanded. "'It means I know exactly where you are, Mr. Lipvig.' The pottery face was impassive. Moist gave up. He limped out into what, for this city, was a fresh new morning. There had been a touch of frost overnight, just enough to put some zest into the air and give him an appetite. The leg still hurt, but at least he didn't need the crutch today. Here was Moist von Lipvig walking through the city. He'd never done that before. The late Alfred Spangler had, and so had Mundo Smith and Edwin Streep and half a dozen other personas that he donned and discarded. Oh, he'd been moist inside. What a name. Yes, he'd heard every possible joke. But they had been on the outside, between him and the world. Edwin Streep had been a work of art. He'd been a lack-of-confidence trickster, and needed to be noticed. He was so patently, 
obviously bad at running a bent find-the-lady game and other street scams that people positively queued up to trick the dumb trickster and walked away grinning, right up to the point when they tried to spend the coins they'd scooped up so quickly. There's a secret art to forgery, and Moist had discovered it. In a hurry, or when excited, people will complete the forgery by their own cupidity. They'll be so keen to snatch the money from the obvious idiot that their own eyes fill in all the little details that aren't quite there on the coins they so quickly pocket. All you needed to do was hint at them. But that was just for starters. Some customers never even discovered that they'd put fake coins in their purse, thus revealing to the incompetent Streep in which pocket they kept it. Later on they learned that Streep might be rubbish with a deck of cards, but also that this lack was more than made up for by his exceptional skill as a pickpocket. Now Moist felt like a peeled prawn. He felt as though he'd stepped out naked, and yet still no one was taking any notice. There were no cries of, "'Hey, you!' no shouts of, that's him. He was just another face in the crowd. It was a strange new feeling. He'd never really had to be himself before. He celebrated by buying a street directory from the Guild of Merchants and had a coffee and a bacon sandwich while he thumbed greasily through it for the list of bars. He didn't find what he was looking for there, but he did find it in the list of hairdressers and grinned when he did so. It was nice to be right. He also found a mention of Dave's Pin Exchange, up in Dolly Sisters, in an alley between a house of negotiable affection and a massage parlour. It bought and sold pins to pin fanciers. Moist finished his coffee with a look on his face which those who knew him well, a group consisting in fact of absolutely nobody, would have recognised as the formation of a plan. Ultimately, everything was all about people. If he was going to be staying here for a while he'd make himself comfortable. He went for a walk to the self-styled home of Acuphilia. It was like lifting an unregarded stone and finding a whole new world. Dave's pin exchange was the kind of small shop where the owner knows every single one of his customers by name. It was a wonderful world, the world of pins. It was a hobby that could last you a lifetime. Moist knew this because he expended one dollar on pins by J. Lanugo Owlsbury, apparently the last word on the subject. Everyone had their funny little ways, Moist conceded, but he wasn't entirely at home among people who, if they saw a pin-up, would pay attention to the pins. Some of the customers browsing the book racks, missed drawers, double pointers and flaws, pins of Uberwald and Genua, first steps in pins, adventures in acuphilia, and staring covetously at the rack of pins laid out under glass, had an intensity of expression that frightened him. They looked a bit like Stanley. They were all male. Clearly women weren't natural pinheads. He found total pins on the bottom rack. It had a smudgy, home-produced look, and the print was small and dense and lacked such subtleties as paragraphs and, in many cases, punctuation. The common comma had looked at Stanley's expression and decided not to disturb him. When Moist put the little magazine on the counter, the shop's owner, a huge, bearded man with dreadlocks, a pin through his nose, a beer belly belonging to three other people, and the words death or pins tattooed on a bicep, picked it up and tossed it back down dismissively. "'Sure about that, sir?' 
he said. We've got pins monthly, new pins, practical pins, modern pins, pins extra, pins international, talking pins, pins world, world pins, world of pins, pins and pinneries. Moist's attention wandered off for a while, but came back in time to catch the Acufile Digest, Extreme Pins, Stifter, that's from Uberwelt, very good if you collect foreign pins, Beginning Pins, that's a part work, sir, with a new pin every week, Pin Times and, here the big man winked, Back Alley Pins. I noticed that one, said Moist. It has lots of pictures of young women in leather. Yes, sir, but to be fair, they're generally holding pins. So, then, it's still total pins for you, is it? He added, as if giving a fool one last chance to repent of his folly. Yes, said Moist. What's wrong with it? Oh, nothing. Nothing at all. Dave scratched his stomach thoughtfully. It's just that the uh, editor is a bit... a, a bit... A bit what? said Moist. Well, we think he's a bit weird about pins, to tell you the truth. Moist looked around the shop. Really? he said. Moist went to a nearby cafe and leafed through the magazine. One of the skills of his previous life had been an ability to pick up just enough about anything to sound like an expert, at least to non-experts. Then he returned to the shop. Everyone had their levers. Often it was greed. Greed was a reliable old standby. Sometimes it was pride. That was Groat's lever. He desperately wanted promotion. You could see it in his eyes. Find the lever, and then it was plain sailing. Stanley, now, Stanley, would be easy. Big Dave was examining a pin under a microscope when Moist returned to the shop. The rush hour for pin buying must have been nearly over, because there were only a few laggards ogling the pins under glass or thumbing through the racks. Moist sidled over the counter and coughed. Yes, sir, said Big Dave, looking up from his work. Back again, eh? They get to you, don't they? "'Seen anything you like?' "'A packet of pre-perforated pin-papers "'and a tenpenny lucky dip bag, please,' said Moist loudly. "'The other customers looked up for a moment "'as Dave pulled the packets off their rack "'and then looked down again. "'Moist leaned over the counter. "'I was wondering,' he whispered hoarsely, "'if you'd got anything a bit, you know, sharper.' "'The big man gave him a carefully blank look. "'How do you mean, sharper?' he said. "'You know,' said Moist. He cleared his throat. "'More... pointed?' The doorbell jangled as the last of the customers, sated on pins for one day, stepped out. Dave watched them go and then turned his attention back to Moist. "'Bit of a connoisseur, are we, sir?' he said, winking. "'A serious student,' said Moist. "'Most of the stuff here, well...' "'I don't touch nails,' said Dave sharply. "'Won't have them in the shop. "'I've got a reputation to think about.' "'Little kids come in here, you know.' "'Oh, no. Strictly pins, that's me,' said Moist hastily. "'Good,' said Dave, relaxing. "'As it happens, I might have one or two items for the genuine collector.' He nodded towards a beaded curtain at the back of the shop. "'Can't put everything on display. Not with youngsters around, you know how it is.' Moist followed him through the clashing curtain and into the crowded little room behind, where Dave, after looking around conspiratorially, "'pulled a small black box off a shelf "'and flipped it open under Moist's nose. "'Not something you find every day, eh?' said Dave. "'Gosh, it's a pin,' thought Moist, but said, "'Wow!' in a tone of well-crafted, genuine surprise. 
A few minutes later, he stepped out of the shop, fighting an impulse to turn his collar up. That was the problem with certain kinds of insanity. They could strike at any time. After all, he'd just spent seventy Ankh-Morpork dollars on a damned pin. He stared at the little packets in his hand and sighed. As he carefully put them in his jacket pocket, his hand touched something papery. Oh, yes, the SWALK letter. He was about to shove it back when his eye caught sight of the ancient street sign opposite, Lobin Clout. And as his gaze moved down, it also saw, over the first shop in the narrow street, number one, A. Parker and Sons, Greengrocers, high-class fruit and vegetables. Well, why not deliver it? He was the postmaster, wasn't he? What harm could it do? He slipped into the shop. A middle-aged man was introducing fresh carrots, or possibly carrots, into the life of a bulky woman with a big shopping bag and hairy warts. Mr Antimony Parker, said Moist urgently, I'll be with you in just one moment, sir. I'm just, the man began. I need to know if you are Mr Antimony Parker, that's all, said Moist. The woman turned to glare at the intruder, and Moist gave her a smile so winning that she blushed and wished just for a moment that she'd worn makeup today. "'That's father,' said the greengrocer. "'He's out the back, tackling a difficult cabbage.' "'This is his,' said Moist, "'postal delivery.' He put the envelope on the counter and walked quickly out of the shop. Shopkeeper and customer stared down at the pink envelope. "'S-W-A-L-K,' said Mr Parker." "'That takes me back, Mr Parker,' said the woman. "'In my day we used to put that on our letters when we was courting, didn't you? "'Sealed with a loving kiss. "'There was S-W-A-L-K and L-A-N-C-R-E and...' "'She lowered her voice and giggled. "'K-L-A-T-C-H, of course. Remember?' "'All that passed me by, Mrs Goodbody,' said the greengrocer stiffly. And if it means young men are sending our dad pink envelopes with swalk on them, I'm thankful for it. Modern times, eh? He turned and raised his voice. Father? Well, that was a good deed for the day, Moist thought. Or a deed, in any case. It looked as though Mr Parker had managed to acquire some sons one way or another. Still, it was odd to think of all those letters heaped in that old building. You could imagine them as little packets of history, Deliver them, and history went one way. But if you dropped them in the gap between the floorboards, it went the other. <laughs> he shook his head, as if one tiny choice by someone unimportant could make that much difference. History had to be a bit tougher than that. It all sprang back eventually, didn't it? He was sure he'd read something somewhere. If it wasn't like that, no one would ever dare do anything. He stood in the little square where eight roads met, and chose to go home via Market Street. It was as good a way as any other. When he was sure that both Stanley and the Golem were busy on the mail mountains, Mr Grote crept away through the labyrinth of corridors. Bundles of letters were stacked so high and tightly that it was all he could do to squeeze through, but at last he reached the shaft of the old hydraulic elevator, long disused. The shaft had been filled up with letters. However... The engineer's ladder was still clear, and that, at least, went up to the roof. Of course, there was the fire escape outside, but that was outside, and Grote was not over-keen on going outside at the best of times. He inhabited the post office like a very small snail in a very large shell. He was used to gloom. 
Now, slowly and painfully, his legs shaking, he climbed up through the floors of mail and forced open the trap door at the top. He blinked and shuddered in the unfamiliar sunlight and hauled himself out onto the flat roof. He'd never really liked doing this, but what else could he have done? Stanley ate like a bird and Grote mostly got by on tea and biscuits, but it all cost money, even if you went round the markets just as they closed up, and somewhere in the past, decades ago, the pay had stopped arriving. Grote had been too frightened to go up to the palace to find out why. He was afraid that if he asked for money he'd be sacked. So he'd taken to renting out the old pigeon loft. Where was the harm in that? All the pigeons had joined their feral brethren years ago, and a decent shed was not to be sneezed at in this city, even if it did whiff a bit. There was an outside fire escape and everything. It was a little palace compared to most lodgings. Besides, these lads didn't mind the smell, they said. They were pigeon fanciers. Grote wasn't sure what that entailed, except that they had to use a little clax tower to fancy them properly, but they paid up, that was the important thing. He skirted the big rainwater tank for the defunct lift and sidled around the rooftops to the shed where he knocked politely. "'It's me, lads. Just come about the rent,' he said. The door was opened and he heard a snatch of conversation. "'The linkages won't stand it for more than thirty seconds.' "'Oh, Mr Grote, come on in,' said the man who had opened the door. This was Mr Carlton, the one with the beard a dwarf would be proud of. No, two dwarfs would be proud of. He seemed more sensible than the other two, although this was not hard. Grote removed his hat. "'Come about the rent, sir,' he repeated, peering around the man. "'Got a bit of news, too. Just thought I'd better mention, lads, we've got a new postmaster. If you could be a bit careful for a while, a nod's as good as a wink, eh?' "'How long's this one going to last, then?' said a man who was sitting on the floor, working on a big metal drum full of what, to Mr Grote, appeared to be very complicated clockwork. "'You'll push him off the roof by Saturday, right?' "'No, no, Mr Winton. There's no call to make fun of me like that,' said Grote nervously. "'Once he's been here a few weeks and got settled in, I'll kind of, um, hint that you're here, all right? "'Pigeons getting on OK, are they?' he peered around the loft. Only one pigeon was visible, hunched up high in a corner. "'They're out for exercise right now,' said Winton. "'All oh, right, that'll be it, then,' said Grote. "'Anyway,' We're a bit more interested in woodpeckers at the moment, said Winton, pulling a bent metal bar out of the drum. See, Alex, I told you it's bent. And two gears are stripped bare. Woodpeckers, said Grote. There was a certain lowering of the temperature, as if he'd said the wrong thing. That's right, woodpeckers, said a third voice. Woodpeckers, Mr Emery? The third pigeon fancier always made Grote nervous. It was the way his eyes were always on the move, as if he was trying to see everything at once, and he was always holding a tube with smoke coming out of it, or another piece of machinery. They all seemed very interested in tubes and cogwheels, if it came to that. Oddly enough, Grote had never seen them holding a pigeon. He didn't know how pigeons were fancied, but he assumed that it had to be close up. "'Yes, woodpeckers,' said the man, while the tube in his hand changed colour from red to blue. "'Because?' And here, he appeared to stop and think for a moment. We're seeing if they can be taught to, oh yeah, tap out the message when they get there, see? Much better than messenger pigeons. Why? said Grote. Mr Emery stared at the whole world for a moment. Because they can deliver messages in the dark, he said. Well done, murmured the man, dismantling the drum. Ah, oh, could be a lifesaver, I can see that, said Grote. "'Can't see it beating the clacks, though.' 
That's what we want to find out, said Winton. But we'd be very grateful if you didn't tell anyone about this, said Carlton quickly. Here's your three dollars, Mr Grope. We wouldn't want other people stealing our idea, you see. Lips are sealed, lads, said Grote. Don't you worry about it. You can rely on Grote. Carlton was holding the door open. We know we can. Goodbye, Mr Grote. Grote heard the door shut behind him as he walked back across the roof. Inside the shed, there seemed to be an argument starting. He heard someone say, What did you have to go and tell him that for? That was a bit hurtful, someone thinking he couldn't be trusted. And, as he eased his way down the long ladder, Grote wondered if he ought to have pointed out that woodpeckers wouldn't fly in the dark. It was amazing that bright lads like them hadn't spotted this floor. They were, he thought, a bit gullible. A hundred feet down and a quarter of a mile away as the woodpecker flies during daylight, Moist followed the path of destiny. Currently it was leading him through a neighbourhood that was on the downside of whatever curve you hoped you'd bought your property on the upside of. Graffiti and rubbish were everywhere here. They were everywhere in the city if it came to that, but elsewhere the garbage was better quality rubbish and the graffiti were close to being correctly spelled. The whole area was waiting for something to happen, like a really bad fire. And then he saw it. It was one of those hopeless little shop fronts that houses enterprises with a lifetime measured in days, like giant clearance sale of socks with two heels each, tights with three legs and shirts with one sleeve four feet long. The window was boarded over, but just visible behind the graffiti above it were the words, The Golem Trust. Moist pushed open the door. Glass crunched under his feet. A voice said, Hands where I can see them, mister. He raised his hands cautiously while peering into the gloom. There was definitely a crossbow being wielded by a dim figure. Such light as had managed to get around the boards glinted off the tip of the bolt. Oh, said the voice in the dark, as if mildly annoyed that there was no excuse to shoot anybody. All right, then. We had visitors last night. The window, said Moist. It happens about once a month. I was just sweeping it up. There was the scratch of a match, and a lamp was lit. They don't generally attack the golems themselves. Not now there's free ones around. But glass doesn't fight back. The lamp was turned up, revealing a tall young woman in a tight grey woollen dress, with coal-black hair plastered down so that she looked like a peg doll, and forced into a tight bun at the back. There was a slight redness to her eyes that suggested she had been crying. "'You're lucky to have caught me,' she said. I'd only come in to make sure nothing had been taken. Are you here to sell or to hire? You can put your hands down now, she added, placing the crossbow under the counter. Sell or hire, said Moist, lowering his hands with care. A golem, she said in a talking-to-the-hard-of-thinking voice. We are the golem trust. We buy or hire golems. Do you want to sell a golem or hire a golem? Neither, said Moist, I've got a golem. I mean, one is working for me. Really? Where? said the woman. And we can probably speed up a little, I think. At the post office. Oh, Pump 19, said the woman. He said it was government service. We call him Mr. Pump, said Moist primly. Really? And you get a wonderful, warm, charitable feeling when you do. Pardon? What? said Moist, bewildered. He wasn't sure if she was managing the trick of laughing at him behind her frown. The woman sighed. Sorry, I'm a bit snappish this morning. A brick landing on your desk does that to you. 
Let's just say they don't see the world in the same way as we do, okay? They've got feelings, in their own way, but they're not like ours. Anyway, how can I help you, Mr... Von Lipvig, said Moist, and added, Moist, Von Lipvig, to get the worst over with. But the woman didn't even smile. Lipvig, small town near Oberwald, she said, picking up a brick from the broken glass and debris on her desk, regarding it critically, and then turning to the ancient filing cabinet behind her and filing it under B. Chief export, its famous dogs, of course. Second most important export, its beer. Except during the two weeks of Sectoberfest, when it exports second-hand beer, probably. I don't know. We left when I was a kid, said Moist. As far as I'm concerned, it's just a funny name. Try Adorabelle Deerheart sometime, said the woman. Ah, that's not a funny name, said Moist. Quite, said Adorabelle Deerheart. I now have no sense of humour whatsoever. Well, now that we've been appropriately human towards one another, what exactly was it you wanted? Look, Vetinari has sort of lumbered me with Mr... with Pump 19 as an... an assistant, but I don't know how to treat... Moist sought in the woman's eyes for some clue as to the politically correct term and plumped for him. What? Just treat him normally? You mean normally for a human being, or normally for a pottery man filled with fire? To Moist's astonishment, Adorabelle Deerhart took a packet of cigarettes out of a desk drawer and lit one. She mistook his expression and proffered the pack. Uh, no, thanks, he said, waving it away. Apart from the occasional old lady with a pipe, he'd never seen a woman smoke before. It was strangely attractive, especially since, as it turned out, she smoked a cigarette as if she had a grudge against it, sucking the smoke down and blowing it out almost immediately. "'You're getting hung up about it all, right?' she said. When Miss Dearheart wasn't smoking, she held the cigarette at shoulder height, the elbow of her left arm cupped in her right hand. There was a definite feel about Adorabelle Dearheart that a lid was only barely holding down an entire womanful of anger. Yes, I, I mean, Moist began, ha! It's just like the campaign for equal heights and all that patronising stuff they spout about dwarfs and why we shouldn't use terms like small talk and feeling small. Golems don't have any of our baggage about who am I, why am I here, okay, because they know. They were made to be tools, to be property, to work. Work is what they do. In a way, it's what they are. End of existential angst. Miss Dearheart inhaled and then blew out the smoke in one nervous movement. And then stupid people go around calling them persons of clay and Mr. Spanner and so on, which they find rather strange. They understand about free will. They also understand that they don't have it. Mind you, once a golem owns himself, it's a different matter. Own? How does property own itself? said Moist. You said they were... They save up and buy themselves, of course. Freehold is the only path to freedom they'll accept. Actually, what happens is that the free golems support the trust, the trust buys golems whenever it can, and the new golems then buy themselves from the trust at cost. It's working well. The free golems earn 24-8, and there's more and more of them. They don't eat, sleep, wear clothes, or understand the concept of leisure. The occasional tube of ceramic cement doesn't cost much. They're buying more golems every month now and paying my wages, and the iniquitous rent the landlord of this dump is charging because he knows he's renting the golems. They never complain, you know. They pay whatever's asked. They're so patient it could drive you nuts. Tube of ceramic cement, thought Moist. He tried to fix that thought in case it came in useful, 
but some mental processes were fully occupied with the growing realisation of how well some women could look in a severely plain dress. Surely they can't be damaged, can they? he managed. Certainly they can. A sledgehammer on the right spot would really mess one up. Owned golems will just stand there and take it, but the trust golems are allowed to defend themselves, and when someone weighing a ton snatches a hammer out of your hand, you have to let go really quickly. I think Mr. Pump is allowed to hit people, said Moist. Quite, quite possibly. A lot of the frees are against that, but others say a tool can't be blamed for the use to which it's put, said Ms. Dearhart. They debate it a lot, for days and days. No rings on her fingers, Moist noted. What kind of attractive girl works for a bunch of clay men? This is all fascinating, he said. Where can I find out more? We do a pamphlet, said almost certainly Miss Dearheart, pulling open a drawer and flipping a thin booklet onto the desk. It's five pence. The title on the cover was Common Clay. Moist put down a dollar. Keep the change, he said. No, said Miss Dearheart, fumbling for coins in the drawer. Didn't you read what it said over the door? Yes, it said... "'Smash the bar studs,' said Moist. "'Miss Dearheart put a hand to her forehead wearily. "'Oh, yes, the painter hasn't been yet, "'but underneath that, look, it's on the back of the pamphlet.' "'Moist read, or at least looked at it. "'It's one of their own languages,' she said. "'It's all a bit mystic, said to be spoken by angels. "'It translates as, by our own hand or none,' They're fiercely independent, you've no idea. She admires them, Moist thought. Woo-ee! And angels? Well, thank you, he said. I'd better be going. I'll definitely... Uh, well, thank you, anyway. What are you doing at the post office, Mr. Van Lipvig? said the woman as he opened the door. Call me Moist, said Moist, and a bit of his inner self shuddered. I'm the new postmaster. No kidding, said Miss Dearheart. "'Then I'm glad you've got Pump 19 with you. "'The last few postmasters didn't last long, I gather.' "'I think I heard something about that,' said Moist cheerfully. "'It sounds as though things were pretty bad in the olden days.' "'Miss Dearheart's brow wrinkled. "'Olden days,' she said. "'Last month was olden days?' End of CD 2